is Dr. Jordan Harris, and I'm here today with my friend Luke Jackson, and we're going to be talking about um, some clinical aspects of suicide assessment. Luke, say hello and give us a brief intro to yourself. Yes, hello. I'm so happy to be here, Jordan. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I've had some experience here in Arkansas in the community mental health uh, agency setting, and I've also had previous experience in other spaces too, and I'm just excited to engage in this conversation. This is an important one to to have. Great, 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 great. Okay, so what we're going to just spend a little bit of time talking about today is the five bosses model, right? One of the big things that happens when we are involved in suicide assessment is we often need to either make a report, right, or send someone to the hospital for a second evaluation, right? Um, and that can get tricky, right, um, for a number of different reasons. Maybe you got to call someone's parents. Maybe you have to break confidence. I mean, you're not technically breaking confidentiality, but it can feel like, feel like that if you're calling someone else to pick up somebody, you know, calling any emergency contact. And um, so because it can be tricky, what we want to do is lay out a framework people can use wherever they are to think through how do I make this decision and who do I need to consult with in order to make a really solid decision? And so that's why we're going to talk about the five bosses of decision-making. Mm -hmm. uh, I am stealing this from someone else, and I, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I'm, I'm uh, sad to say I can't remember who told me this. So this is not my own material, um, but if you can figure out whoever came up with this, I will happily give them kudos if anyone out there knows. <laughs> if anyone out there knows. Yeah. So I don't want to take credit for this, but also I found it so powerful that it instantly stuck with me. Mm. Um, and so the five bosses of ethical decision-making basically are the five groups of stakeholders that you really need to think through and have in the back of your mind when you're making an ethical decision, right? One of those is just legal, right? What does your ethical code say? What does your state law say? Um, so you have like the legal ethical boss, right? Another is your supervisor, right? And this can be any number of different um, groups of people, right? If you're fully licensed, it can be your um, your license. It can be your site supervisor. If you're not fully licensed, it can be your licensure supervisor. Um, it could be any of those people, right? On another level, so that's sort of the second boss is your mm -hmm. supervisor. Mm -hmm. um, a third boss is any third party that needs to know, right? If you work at a school, maybe you need to inform um, the school counselor or a principal or something like that. Um, if you're working in private practice, maybe you need to inform a parent or a caregiver or something like, like, like that, any sort of third party person. Um, fourth, is any sort of payer source, right? Oftentimes, at least in my experience, I kind of like to hear yours in just a minute, mm -hmm. um, your payer source has their own sort of requirements that they have to have, right? So that might be dependent on, on if you have insurance, if you're taking insurance, maybe um, you are working with a grant program, they have certain types of reporting they want you to do, um, any of that sort of stuff. So that's sort of like the fourth boss. And then last but not least is your own like ethical code, your own moral code. And this can get tricky 
because we don't want people to make decisions completely based off their own morals. We have, you know, ethical mm-hmm. codes for that, like ask, mm-hmm. like uh, written out ethical codes. Mm-hmm. But we still want you to be able to sleep at night, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are sort of the five bosses of ethical decision-making, the laws, <clears throat> your supervisor, third parties, uh, payer sources, and then your own sort of ethical code. So, uh, Luke, I think one of the benefits of having you on is that you actually work in a completely different domain than I work, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I'm in private practice and you're doing community-based work, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I want to just talk through these five bosses and get your experience working with these different bosses, okay? So let's start with the number one, the okay. laws. Like, yeah. when you're in agency world, and I'm in private practice world, but we're both in, 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 in Arkansas, kind of have the same laws Mm -hmm. so sort of tell us like what basically on a very basic level are some of the laws we have to um, think about when we are doing suicide assessments right we have confidentiality we have mandated reporting just you know give us an overview of mandated reporting in 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 arkansas sure so you know of course as therapists and people working in that field we are mandated reporters uh so if in regards to abuse you know if we hear um any sort of uh, suspected abuse, or if, if uh, we hear from a minor, you know, any anything going on that could indicate abuse, then we, you know, we don't have the ability to evaluate or to investigate. We just need to report and let the let those people do their job in that. So, I, I you know, I've done a lot of that in my setting, to where I, I hear something, and, and sometimes it's a challenge <clears throat> to to report that because it could very well be that everything is safe right now, uh, but you know because of the law, we have to report. And the, the same goes for a suicide assessment too. You know, if, if you're doing a risk assessment with a client and they indicate um, some intent and they indicate um, some specific plans and maybe some specific times, you know, in that moment, it, it sort of the law, you know, the, the triggers something in which we need to begin acting. You know, we, so that, that's a little bit about what we can experience there with, with the law. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember when I was a new therapist and I was very anxious about like having to make reports on that, you know, like you're mm-hmm. talking about. Mm-hmm. And I had a, a teacher, yeah. an older, wiser teacher who the way that he put it really put me at ease. Right. And I don't think it's going to put everyone at, at ease, you know, but I think for my mind it did. And you hit on it, right. Of it's really not your choice. It's not in your hands. And also, you're not evaluating people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If someone says, hey, I'm being abused, hey, I'm going to hurt myself, hey, I'm going to hurt someone else, like, at that point, it's out of your hands, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I think in some cases, those are, like, the, the easy suicide cases in a way because mm-hmm. the decision is, like, clear. Right. You know? And so it's not really on me. It's just the law, um, and this is what has to happen. Right. I think that you hit on something else, which is like, what's when you're doing the assessment, you know, if someone hasn't said overtly, but there are a lot of sort of red, red flags, it can be, ooh, that's when, for me, it can get a little bit um, anxiety provoking, make mm-hmm. me a little nervous. Mm-hmm. And in those moments, I'm super thankful for the people who do those assessments, you know, like um, people, um, organizations that have inpatient facilities or acute facilities like Springwoods, for example, you know, they, they're just spectacular at um responding very quickly to you and just 
reaching out and say, hey, I need an assessment. You know, I'm, this, this student's reporting some stuff that um, needs to get checked out and, and they're ready and they do that assessment. And then what, then the, either the, the adolescent goes to the unit or they've been assessed early and we can be a bit more confident after that, that, okay, we can continue treatment in an outpatient way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so those are the laws, right? Those are the laws. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about supervisors. For you and your, and your situation, who are your supervisors? People who you would have to talk to, consult with if you say, hey, I think this client is suicidal. Yeah, so good question. In most agency settings, what I've found is you'll have a clinical supervisor that may not be the same person as your licensure supervisor. Your licensure supervisor is someone who you go to for clinical cases. You know, you, they track your hours and you report to the, the state board. Your clinical supervisor in an agency setting you know, is just someone that helps you to keep track with, hey, are you maintaining your documentation hey you missed this ROI for this client or hey um, you know here's this training that you know let's try to figure out some time for you to go to this and um, they're sort of in a way you're like your manager um, to put it in a, use a different word there and and in these cases of course when the high risk is involved with clients um, the expectation in the agency setting is to yeah to communicate with your um, clinical supervisor and that and if not to your licensure supervisor as well and sometimes those can be the same person but oftentimes they're different i think you hit really well on the different roles there mm-hmm. right um because i've heard it from both sides right where like i was talking to a friend of mine this was about a year ago who's a licensed licensing supervisor in louisiana mm-hmm. she she was like i was so mad at my licensee right mm-hmm. at my at my trainee because, yeah, they told their clinical supervisor, but they're on my license, and they didn't mm-hmm. tell me. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I think sometimes new therapists don't know that they mm-hmm. need to inform both people. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure the same thing happens in the opposite direction, right, where you work for an agency, something happens, you call your licensure supervisor, and you think, oh, it's okay. And I think sometimes, tra- and, but they haven't called the clinical supervisor to supervisor and i think sometimes trainees think that the agency supervisor and the licensure supervisor talk and most of the time they don't that's so true <laughs> yes. they don't talk right um even if they're at the same agency they they they're just busy mm-hmm. and so uh i think we need we need to be clear to supervisees to trainees that hey like you kind of have to be the communication bridge between the two at times, you mm-hmm. know? And on top of that too, if I can add one more thing, yeah. um, supervisors like for license are responsible for the clients that the supervisee is serving. Uh, so that, you know, it's so important to report to your license, your supervisor, just because, Hey, they're, they're supervising you with those clients. Um, and with these high risk situations, you know, it's, it's, it's so important to over communicate. You know, oftentimes when I go through these moments, I'm over communicating and and almost bothering my supervisor at times with these things. But I do that because I want my supervisor to know, hey, um, I'm I'm doing everything I can to make sure that this is a safe situation for me and my profession, but also my supervisor's profession, too. I'm protecting their career as well whenever I do that. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. I think that's so important, right? Because I think you named a feeling that we can often have, which is I'm bothering this 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 person. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, if at least a rule for myself is, 
I don't feel like I'm bothering this person. I'm not communicating enough mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. on these on these big issues because mm-hmm. they need to know. They really need to know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm in private practice, and so I don't have direct supervisor. Um, but what I but what I do is I do have a group of people who I consult with, right? Um, on hard cases, and. I think that's really important because I know that, well, I think that anybody who's insular, who's insulated, they can just veer off the path, right? If, if, if only you are the only mind in your space, I think you can just get um, lost, right? Yeah. It's like radar, you know? Like, <laughs> I've, I don't know this, but I've heard that radar works by sending out a signal. And when it comes mm-hmm. bouncing back to you, that's when you know where you are and where to go next. Mm. I think so often if you're alone, you know, there's no one else to sort of ping things off of to get mm-hmm. it to say this is where I am and this is where sort of the path is for me. So mm-hmm. I have two, two or two or two or three people who um, I contract with, and if something happens, like I give them a call, you mm-hmm. know. So it's not a direct supervisor, but it is someone who can walk with me on this journey, so that I know I'm not alone in this, and so that yes. I know that I have other people who can see things that I don't see. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about third-party payers. Who 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 pays the bills for you, Luke? Yeah. So most most of the time, insurance companies, uh, Medicaid, or uh, sometimes there are various grants that people have trouble getting Medicaid. Um, and in those instances, I I, I got to be aware of first off who's paying um, and what regulations are there um, when when there's different payers out there. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. I used to work at a um, a homeless shelter that was all grant funded, mm. right? It was all grant funded. And so we didn't have to like call the grant committee or any of that sort of stuff, but we had to document um, in a certain way, mm-hmm. right? So we had like our, our, our normal notes, which honestly were kind of however we wanted to like document them. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it came to safety issues, we had to document a very specific way. Mm. And the same thing happened when I worked at a psych center, right? Uh, the way we had to, 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 to like document, we had to, we had to have certain things in the document. We had to have a, a safety plan on file, um, regardless of if the client wanted it or not. We had to have so many emergency contacts, regardless of if the client, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd have clients who were like, I don't have anybody. And I'd be like, back in the back of my mind, like crap. Because according to my third-party payer, I have to have three people on this list. Mm. <laughs> There's no negotiation here. Yes, right? yes. So that's been my experience uh, working with, with third-party payers. Mm-hmm. And you you made me think of how when we write these notes uh, to the insurance companies or to the um, grant funders, um, a mentor of mine also has suggested to me, hey, when you're writing these notes and safety becomes involved, write the note as if someone is looking over your shoulder and just seeing, Hey, have I done everything in my power to keep this person safe or to ensure that the situation has been assessed properly? Um, it very well likely be that no one's going to see that note. <laughs> um, but it helps, it helps me sleep better at night knowing that I thoroughly did that. And to just being aware of the precautions taken and writing everything down. Hey, I communicated with this person. We developed a safety plan, et cetera. Um, it can be tedious sometimes, but in those moments, it's it's really good to over-communicate on paper, too. 100%. 100%. I think it's what lots of clients or lots of 
clinicians also do safety plans, you know? Um, like, if you look at the actual research on safety plans, um, a safety plan that isn't collaborative tends to not be super helpful. Mm-hmm. But I, And so I think sometimes um, clinicians really push for them, though, because they want that level of documentation. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, and this is maybe something that we should train on, you know, in the future, Luke, is how to really yeah. do a collaborative safety plan. Uh, but that's so important. It's so important, right? But I think that the ethos behind that is really, is really, really good. Of I want to make sure that I'm documenting everything. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that all my T's are across and all my I's are like dotted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about um, third parties, not third party pairs, but third party uh, players, <laughs> third party players who are involved in your in your uh, case, right? When I mm-hmm. was doing in home therapy, we talked about these as collaterals. Um, so for me, collaterals tend to be just parents, right? I don't work with a lot of schools. I don't work with, with a lot of different agencies, but for me, collaterals tend to be parents and emergency contacts. What about for you in your, in your arena? Do you, what kind of third party, uh, players, what kind of collateral contacts do you, do you have to make when you're, do you have to work with? Yeah, this is a big one for me. Um, I've done some school-based work. And when the school was involved, there's a lot of specific things that it's really important to be aware of. So for my place that I've been at, um, the district actually recently implemented this plan to where if a student um, even just gets assessed for um, suicidal ideation intent, or um, I also believe homicidal um, as well, um, that the school counselor uh, needs to have a documented safety plan that they make collaboratively with the student. So if I'm, you know, doing a risk assessment with a student and we're talking about possibly doing um, hospitalization there, I also have to keep in mind, hey, the school is going to need this safety plan as well. Um, so keeping that in mind. And, and, and who do you submit that to? Do you submit that to the school counselor? Do you submit that to a principal, uh, someone else? Who, who, would you, who would you submit that to? In my, it could be different depending on the district, but in my experience, oh, yeah. school counselors are the best um, and the most necessary person to be in contact with. Um, and especially just knowing if you're if you're working with the school or if you have an ROI with the school, um, just knowing who your student's school counselor is. Because some of these big schools have several school counselors, you know, seven to eight um, different people working with those students. So just being aware of which counselor knows that student is checking in on that student. And if it's a high-risk student, being able to have an extra set of eyes on that student whenever you're not there, of course, would be of immense importance, too. Yeah. I like how you made that really region-specific, right? And the districts that I've worked in, this is what it is. I've worked in – when I did in-home, I also went into the schools. Um, and we had school counselors, but we also had school social workers, mm-hmm. right? And uh, we also had school psych- psych- psychologists. And so, you know, different regions are are different. And the point of all, of all this is not like you need to talk to your school counselor, but it's like just be thinking along these these lines because you could very well be in a region where the point person is the school social worker, mm-hmm. right? But in our region, the school count the school counselor is the is the point person, and so people just need to be thinking through. Okay, for my context, do I know who the point person is for mm-hmm. this sort of collateral contact, right? For these mm-hmm. other people. I love it. I love it, man. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. And then ethical 
your own personal moral code, right? Can you mm -hmm. sleep at night with this decision? This is a hard thing for me. Mm -hmm. I had a case uh, not too long ago where I was sure, like I was very certain, that this person needed to be sent to the hospital. So I called it in, um, and all of that happened, and it really honestly broke the relationship between me and this client. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that for lots of people, they know that that's a possibility. Mm -hmm. And so they get really nervous and, and anxious, and they don't want to do it, mm. you know? And so I want to acknowledge that um, in our own moral compass, like we can be conflicted, mm -hmm. you know, on the one hand, it's like in order to sleep, to, to sleep at night, I need to make this phone call, <laughs> but also, <laughs> you know, so that's sort of like the push to do it. Mm -hmm. But then there's also sort of this pull away of well, this could ruin the relationship. And I don't want to mm -hmm. do that. Right. So I know for me, that's sort of the moral dance that I have to do at times, right? Yes. What about for you, man? You know, uh, yeah. How? Do, what is your own morals, your own sort of ethics, personal ethics sort of play into this? Totally. Um, and I can relate to what you've been expressing. And when we are battling, hey, do I need, I may have to report abuse, suspected abuse, or hey, I may need to refer this uh, client of mine to a hospital. Like, that's so hard. It feels like I'm betraying their trust. Mm. My body, everything in my body is telling me this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> like, like this is so hard. I, I have developed an alliance with this client. I've been meeting with this person at least an hour a week for months. And now I have to do something that I think may be in their best interest, but they, they don't want it. They, they feel betrayed. They feel like I'm hurting them. And that's, that's so hard. It's so, uh, so hard. Yeah. I, my How heart. Do you has reminded me of a situation, if I could share it, just a, yeah, a few please. months ago, um, a client who I'd been working with over a year, and there was some stuff that had happened in his past that he had never told anybody. So in that moment, I, my first thought was, wow, I'm so thankful and humbled that you shared this vulnerable, unsafe thing with me from your childhood that you've shared with nobody else like that yeah. is huge yeah and it just shows that the therapeutic alliance was really strong but then my heart sank and i was like if he's never told anybody i have to I have to report this i have to start doing this process it triggered that thing mm. and it i just felt terrible and and every part of me did not want to tell him hey like i gotta go i know you feel safe with me but i have to go break hip confidentiality and tell somebody this and it was such a hard situation and, and, and it, it was, it was messy too. I want to just emphasize, you know, it's not going to be clear cut. And, but, but what I found that was helpful for me in this situation was just being real. You know, this was a 16 year old male who I was talking with and, and just being honest with him and saying, Hey, this is hard for me. I so appreciate you trusting me and, and developing the safety with me that you would share something that you've never shared with anybody. But in these moments, I have to, this trigger something in the law in which I have to act. And I'm apologize if this hurts our relationship, but I hope that we can continue this awesome work that you've already done. And he, he was able to accept that it definitely ruptured the relationship for a little while, but I will say the honesty in that moment um, seemed helpful to him. Yeah. Yeah, man. I thank you for sharing that because I think we've all had those stories. You know, I think if you live long enough in this field, you will have instances like, like that. And so, 
in some ways it's like very specific, but it's also very universal, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so yeah, I appreciate you just speaking to that, my friend. Mm-hmm. So look, those are the five ethical bosses, right? The laws in your state, any supervisors that you might have to report to, any uh, third parties or collaterals, your payer source, and then your own sort of moral code. Um, we're doing this because this is sort of a, a bonus, right? A freebie, a bonus for people who sign up for our training, Luke. But why don't you start us off and tell us just a brief overview of the training, uh, the title, give us the dates and the times, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up here, my friend. Yes, I am so excited about our training coming up. Suicide assessment with families. Uh, you know, we've been talking about suicide assessment, but we, we hadn't talked a whole lot about, you know, when, what happens when the family comes into play. And I, I think our, our nervous system and their nervous systems are just escalating in these heated moments. So it can be so important um, when we're working with families, especially who are feeling unsafe, to have a map, to have a way to think about, you know, for, for therapists and in the room, how, what in the world do I do? And on top of that, the, I think the neat, specific, and maybe unique thing about our training is we're actually going to give some space to practice the skills that we'll teach you. We'll hand you some skills to use in the room with families and assessing for suicide. But we're also going to give you some time to practice and give you some feedback um, in with those skills. So I am personally really excited, and I think this is a really important training. Yeah, I'm excited too, man. I'm excited too. When is it going to be? Right now, the date is August 26th. 8.30 to 9.30 a.m. It's just one hour and you get one credit for NBCC. Um, and I believe also, Jordan, that this can be served as an ethics um, training. Is that is that true? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. It's a one-hour ethics. Yeah, because you're going to be talking about ethics. So, yeah, it's true. You okay. get one hour of, of, of ethics here. Sometimes you just got to slide that in because we, we, we all of us got to have those ethics trainings. Right? Got to have those <laughs> ethics credits, yeah. Cool, man. <laughs> Well, look, uh, if people want to sign up, first of all, if people are getting this direct, because they probably have already signed up, right? Mm-hmm. But there are a few people who might be sent this uh, training from a friend, so they might not know about signing up. You can sign up at jordanthecounselor.com. That's it. It'll be on the homepage. You can check it out. It'll be very, very obvious. Luke, thank you very much. Uh, I'll catch you later, okay? All right. It's a pleasure. See you later.